You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Gene Cavellos. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Doc Coleman. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is when we sit down with some of the most creative minds in the industry, open up their minds and crawl inside and get them to explore the craft of writing so that we can reap the benefits of this mental strip mining and help you, our listeners, <laughs> improve your own writing. Outstanding. So we're, so we're crawling into people's skulls and strip mining their brains. That's badass. Exactly. <laughs> Doc Coleman, thank you so much for returning. You've been my co-host in the past, as I recall, and we've had a grand yeah. old time. Yeah, the last time I was on was so was before the hiatus, so I'm glad to be back. Absolutely, I, and 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 it's an affirmation that we are indeed back. That we bring back old friends and reliable co-pilots like yourself to 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 fly us into this new era of roundtable goodness. Exactly. So, uh, Doc, let me let me let me regale you into the wonders of of our guest host uh, for this uh, for this episode of Twenty Minutes with. Certainly, sir. Sit back, relax, pour pour yourself a scotch. Uh, <laughs> now, now, as you well know, as you and our listeners know, I, I do a fair bit of research in preparation for these uh, uh, guest host arrivals, interviews, podcast articles. I'm all over the place checking this stuff out. NSA files. NSA like files, absolutely. <laughs> the minions are out there. But one place I never expected to go in search of insights is Scientific American. Uh, and yet, that is one of the many places my explorations led me in my quest to unravel the mystery of our guest host. Now, really, that shouldn't have been such a huge surprise when you consider that in her youth, our guest host aspired to be an astronaut like Charlton Heston from Planet of the Apes. Now, as a child, she was asking the big questions like, is there alien life and where did the universe come from? And at the age of eight, she realized she had to make a decision. Stay at home and watch TV and movies or go to school and find some answers. Now, of course, she decided on the latter, but the universe is not without a sense of irony because ultimately she would come to contribute to several television and film franchises in the pursuit of her career. Now, as a child, even though she had her sights squarely set on becoming an astronaut, she was already writing and immersing herself in the delights of the storyteller. In second grade, her story about a witch won her a pumpkin. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> That's one of those one of those awards you don't usually see. You, you don't, and and hopefully it it unless it was a ceramic pumpkin, it's kind of it might still be on the shelf. We don't know. <laughs> but at ten years old, she wrote and produced a science fiction musical. Now she was also into horror, especially the kind with high body counts and inventive creative deaths. Now, her mother would take her to the Dusk to Dawn horror marathons at the local drive-in, and our guest host was captivated, not only by the foreboding atmosphere of lurking horrors, but also by the free packet of green blood they handed out at the gate, and of course, who wouldn't be? So, but... 
Astronaut was the prize, and in college she studied math and astrophysics, ultimately teaching astronomy at Michigan State and Cornell University, and eventually working at the Astronaut Training Division at NASA's Johnson Space Center. She was so close to becoming Charlton Heston! But she realized that the big questions that so fascinated her as a child weren't going to be answered in the nitty-gritty practicality of NASA research. And she realized that it was the implications and possibilities of those ideas that intrigued her. And where do you go to play around in scientific possibilities? You where go, do you go? You go to science fiction, baby. So around 1986, she left NASA to become an author. Now, she had heard that if you want to learn how to write, then you write. And write she did. An 811-page tale of two guys in the Civil War with a psychic connection. Now, where can you find this book? The same place many of our first novels end up. In the metaphorical trunk. Uh, It was bad. And our guest host realized she needed some education and feedback to truly master the writerly craft. So she earned her MFA in creative writing at American University. Now, she also decided it would be incredibly valuable to experience how books get published from the inside. So, subsisting on a diet of powdered mini donuts and sheer determination, that's exactly what she did. Starting out at Doubleday, uh, an imprint of Bantam Doubleday Dell, as an editorial assistant in their religion department. (laughs) Apparently, the universe is not only without a sense of irony, but has a sense of humor as well. Uh, Now, it wasn't long before Dell started ramping up uh, their horror publishing, and several of the editors, guided by some preternatural sense, started handing over horror manuscripts they had purchased for our guest host to handle. Somehow, they knew she'd be perfect for it, and they were right. In fact, our guest host won the World Fantasy Award in 1993 for her editing, and would go on to found two entirely new imprints for Dell, Abyss, a line of sophisticated psychological horror novels, and Cutting Edge, a line of literary noir thrillers. Now, one year later, the TV series Babylon 5 debuted, and our guest host was digging it, as so many of us were. In fact, she dug it so much that she called the show's creator, Joe Straczynski, and asked if he would like Dell to do some novels based on the series. He did, of course, and the Dell novel line for Babylon 5 was born. So all you Babylon 5 fans out there who devoured the Dell line of novels, send your emails of gratitude to our guest host. But later in that year, it was clearly time to move on. Uh, Not only was the publishing business getting in the way of our guest host's writing, but apparently working in the publishing business is not unlike being the protagonist in a Lovecraft novel, because it was driving her insane. Now, after she left... The woman at Warner Brothers, who handles book rights, suggested that our guest host write a Babylon 5 novel. But she had her own stories to work on and never really thought of writing a tie-in novel before, so she gave it a pass. 
Again, the universe is a persistent place. A few months later, she received a form letter that Joe had written to possible authors for this Babylon 5 novel series. It included a couple of ideas for some possible novels, and one of them caught in our guest host's imagination. Soon, a 25-page synopsis was sent off to Dell. They loved it. Joe Straczynski loved it. And thus, the trilogy of novels titled The Passing of the Technomages was born. Described by the Sci-Fi Channel as a revelation for Babylon 5 fans. So, now she's legit. She's a published author. But you can take the author out of the science, but you can't take the science out of the author. In 1998, she would write The Science of the X-Files, which was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award. And in 2000, The Science of Star Wars, which was chosen by the New York Public Library for its recommended reading list. But something was missing. Because one of the things that she had deeply loved about being an editor at Dell was working with and nurturing those developing authors. Uh, Now, she had founded an editorial service to continue that vibe, but even that wasn't cutting it. And she remembered her frustration at being the weird girl in her MFA program who actually liked sci-fi and fantasy while everybody else is writing literary fiction. And wouldn't it be cool if there was a program for writers of sci-fi and fantasy where they could receive a top-shelf MFA-quality learning experience specifically geared towards the genre they loved? So, in 1995, she founded the Odyssey Writing Workshop to achieve that very thing. Since its inception, the Odyssey Writers Workshop has had some amazing guest lecturers and writers in residence, including George R. R. Martin, Harlan Ellison, Terry Brooks, Charles DeLint, Ben Bova, Ellen Datlow, and Dan Simmons. And this year, by the way, in case you were interested, it's the amazing Kidge Johnson. So now, while most writing communities have a different lecturer each week, our guest host wanted to provide more continuity. So in addition to those awesome guest lecturers, she serves as the primary instructor from beginning to end, providing an objective gauge of growth across the entire six weeks. Now, in 2010, Odyssey started offering online courses, which is fabulous, and they also went from a sole proprietorship to a 501c3 in order to keep tuition reasonable. Now, she's also an English teacher at St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire, where she teaches writing and literature. She read The Fellowship of the Ring out loud to her husband, performing the Tom Bombadil section in rap. She loves Elijah Wood and has indulged in fantasies of the two of them ruling the world, surrounded by purring cats and bowls of M&Ms. She once stood on a manhole cover that Harrison Ford had stood upon, and while she's never tried tried to levitate anything, she has attempted telepathy with her iguana, Igmo. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair at the round table, our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes with Jean Cavellos. Jean, I cannot tell you how delighted I am that we were able to make this happen and to have you as our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes with. Thank you so much for making the time. I think this is a wonderful example to all of you out there in listener land. Be careful what you put on the internet. <laughs> I cannot believe all the stuff you found. Oh, it's all out there. It's all out there. It was wonderful. And, and especially the Elijah Wood bit. That was 
That was a rare find and a treat. Well, look, let's let's not waste any time. I want to dive into this. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna set our timer here, which we'll of course ignore because that's how we roll here at the roundtable. Uh, but uh, but let's get down to our 20 minutes with Gene Cavellos. Now, Gene, um, in uh, in an interview on WritingWorld.com back in 2005, you uh, were talking about uh, the novel that you're working on, Fatal Spiral. Uh, uh, and, and you were saying it's the most difficult thing I've written. Uh, I'm not quite sure why it's so hard, but each story is, has its own challenges and requires its own writing process. And I was wondering if you would, for our listeners, go into specifically what kind of challenges you're having. I think it's intriguing that somebody with your background and experience uh, uh, still experiences those challenges. And uh, could you could you speak a little bit to what those challenges were and how you've been overcoming them? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, for me, writing is filled with challenges. And I think one of the biggest difficulties at the start was that I wanted this to be a near future thriller. And the way that I think, I think a lot of our writing problems are connected to our brains and how they work. And so my brain works by starting a story idea with a screwed up character. <laughs> I, I love really, really screwed up characters. And so this is what captures me. I get this idea of this bipolar geneticist who's, you know, really kind of nutty but doing good work. Um, and I just want to show her. And so it's very hard for me at the beginning stages to come up with a conflict because all I want to do is like have scenes where she's being crazy and interesting and spouting off all these beliefs that she has because I also start with a theme. Uh, and in this book, the theme is about. Um, the fact that our genes seriously limit who we are and who, who we can be. Hmm, that okay. we have some free will and we have some ability to change and grow, but it is constrained by our genes. And so I wanted to show that through this character. I wanted her to spout out this philosophy. And that's not a story. Uh, and that's not a conflict and it's sure not a thriller. So part of what I had to do at the start was to figure out, well, what is the conflict and what is the story? And then when I thought I had that, um, what I realized was I have the wrong main character. This <laughs> character, right? This middle-aged woman who has these very strong feelings about genetics and their power over us is not the person that the reader is going to identify with because most readers, um, I think, feel that we have quite a bit of free will and we can do whatever we want to do in life. We can grow and become different things. We have choices. Um, and so what I need is a character who will enter into that world believing what most people believe and then gradually through the conflict and through contact with this character come to realize some of the things that I want to convey in the book. So I had written quite a bit with the wrong main character and then and then had to switch it to her daughter, who's somebody who doesn't know. Um, another big problem that I have is thoroughness. And I think this comes from my scientific background <laughs> and my analytical I, nature. Yeah. And you know, I writing think Dave like, could give you notes on thoroughness. <laughs> <laughs> writing the science of Star Wars or something, that thoroughness can be a good thing. I have to explain how faster than light drive could work and all of that. Um, but in a novel, you don't want to be thorough. You want to spend time on what's important and you want to skip over what's not important. And so I had a hard time with that. Uh, I think part of my 
imagination process is that I need to go through every moment with the characters. So I need to know, how did they get from point A to point B? Uh, and I need to, to know that, I need to write it down. And then I know. But the problem is then it's written down, and it's in the book. And it's like, it doesn't need to be in the book. They can just say, hey, we're at point A, let's go to point B, and then we <laughs> cut to point B, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> that's called a cut scene, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's a difficult thing for me, or at least it was, and I've learned to... Uh, to overcome that to some degree and say, hey, nothing important is happening there. Um, and that's related to another challenge that I have, which is I think uh, it's important for each scene to show a change of significance for the main character. So if he starts out a scene looking for love, then he ends the scene finding love. Or if he starts the scene being in love, then he ends the scene no longer being in love. So something of significance has changed. The problem is that knowing that, I was able to tell myself that I had changes of significance in scenes that really didn't matter. Like, oh, he needs a taxi? Oh, well, he ends the scene by getting a taxi. <laughs> it's like, who cares if he got a taxi or not? I had one scene where the guy was looking for a parking spot, and then he found the oh, parking spot. Major plot arc, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so I started to try to think about whether these changes of significance really were significant or not, and also how they tied to the character's emotional state. That if they show, if they bring about a change a significant change in the emotional state of the character, then that, that gives me a better sense that they're important and worth including rather than just mechanical things that really ultimately don't matter in the big picture. How do you assess that, Gene? How, how, that, you, know, they, you need to take out what's not important and leave in or exemplify what is important. It makes total sense. What, how do you assess the importance or significance of, of a plot progression? Yeah, um, <laughs> that's hard. the question, isn't it? It's hard. I think, well, that's the question, and how do you do it before you've written the scene? Yeah, yeah well. right. It's, it's, it's easier to do it after, which is why I am such a horribly slow writer because I write all this stuff, <laughs> yeah. and then I say, "Oh, okay, I'll cut it." Um, but I think part of it is: is it going to have a lasting impact on the character? So, is the character going to be a different person? because of what happened in the scene. Are they going to leave the scene really being in some way changed, maybe a small way, but in some way that's important to the overall character arc? Are their emotions going to be different? And is, are, is that emotional shift going to cause a change in their behavior in the next scene? So mm, then that could okay. be an important part of the causal chain. Or, you know, clearly if there's some big plot development in that scene, some important fact or change in the conflict happens then then that's going to be significant to the story okay um, but kind of related things that i learned to help me figure that out is um one thing is i started thinking about emotion arcs because what i found is my characters you know i kind of fall in love with this screwed up character and so then the character kind of tends to freeze and stay the same they're screwed up in this particular way that i find interesting Maybe nobody else does, but I do. <laughs> um, so then they don't, you know, I want them to change at the end, but really they need to be evolving and changing through the story and developing. So that's a difficulty for me and to make myself more aware. Are they changing? I think about the emotion arc in each scene. Is the, what's the 
entry emotion that the character enters the scene having, and then how does their emotion change over the course of the scene? Um, there's really interesting acting lessons on, on emotion arcs mm-hmm. uh, where you can stay on one emotion, but the intensity can change. So if you're saying like the character is generally happy, maybe they start the scene out contented, which is a very low level of happiness, and maybe they end the scene in ecstasy. So they've stayed kind of on the same emotion, but it's gotten way more intense. Or has something happened in the scene that switches them to a different emotion, like fear or whatever? Um, And so then I, I make notes before I write each scene. You know, what's the change of significance going to be? What is the emotion arc going to be? What are the necessary events I need to write in that scene? Um, What's the difficult decision the character is going to have to make? Um, So things like that help to keep me, I think, a little bit more honest about, is this scene important or am I just getting them from A to B? And I think it's Uh, safe to say you're probably not a discovery writer at this point. (laughs) No, well, you know, I discover a lot of things as I write, but I definitely have a plan. I'm an outliner. I don't need a lot in an outline. I need the beginning, two turns, and the climax if it's a three-act structure. And that kind of gives me enough guidance that I know where I'm headed at each point in the story. Uh, And I have some idea of a unified plot. Uh, But it does often, you know, the details of it change a lot. And sometimes the big parts change. Okay. What what is the status of Fatal Spiral at this point? Well, see, here's the status of this very thorough. You, you remember the Psychic Western that was eight hundred and eleven pages. I do. Well, this one is three hundred thousand words. <laughs> oh my uh, god! <laughs> Only three hundred thousand. <laughs> yeah, come on. I mean, how long is a Game of Thrones after all? You could kill a Velociraptor with that bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> how long is War and Peace? Exactly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the general. Anyway, so uh, I'm revising, and I'm near the climax in my revision, and I am cutting, but nowhere near anything that would make it into a rational length. Uh, but I will finish the revision, and then I plan to have some people read it, and maybe they will tell me more things that can be cut. Or maybe they will say, Gene, it's just so incredibly brilliant. Don't, <laughs> don't change a thing. Put it out there as is. But I don't really <laughs> think epic so. of our time. <laughs> I don't really think so. So you hope for the best, you plan for the worst. <laughs> We'll be back with more of our conversation with Gene Cavellos after this brief promotional break. The Odyssey Writing Workshop's Charitable Trust is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to helping you, writers of fantasy, science fiction, and horror, improve your work. Each winter, Odyssey holds three intensive online writing classes. Class meetings are held live, so your learning process is active and effective. This year's classes are Showing versus Telling in Fantastic Fiction, taught by Odyssey director Gene Cavellos. One Brick at a Time, Crafting Compelling Scenes, taught by award-winning novelist Barbara Ashford. And Effective Endings in Speculative Fiction, taught by editor and writer C.C. Finley. Application deadlines are early December, so check these out now. Each summer in New Hampshire, 
Odyssey holds its acclaimed six-week workshop, widely considered one of the best programs in the world for writers of the fantastic. Students regularly call it inspiring and transformative. They make great improvements in their work, and 59% of graduates go on to professional publication. The application deadline is April 8th. Odyssey also offers many resources, including a critique service, monthly podcasts, a blog, and a weekly online discussion salon where you can share your writing struggles and insights. Don't let more time pass without making a major improvement in your writing. Visit Odyssey at www.odysseyworkshop.org. Let's get back to the conversation with Gene Cavellos. After listening to the introduction, it was like, so basically your approach on writing is to experience every facet of human behavior. Because uh, <laughs> it seems like you've done just about everything. It's, uh, are, are, there, are there things that you haven't done that you're still looking forward to do? I actually, uh, I, my career plan for my post 100 years is to... First, I want to work at McDonald's, and then when they <laughs> tired out for that, I want to uh, start into basket weaving. <laughs> so, so not only have you outlined your stories, you've outlined your life. Yes, that's where that's where <laughs> I'm headed. And I want to also. I really would like to become a cat lady. I have only one cat right now, but I'm I'm headed toward a hundred is my goal. So, so you've got the cat lady starter kit. <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, let let's let's narrow the the focus of that question uh, more specifically. What what are your plans for for the Odyssey Writing Workshop in say the next ten years? Where do you see that going? Oh my gosh, I'm a very um, big dreamer, you know? As we all are in this biz, <laughs> that's why we do what we do. Yeah, um, so, I mean, I want to continue everything we're doing, the workshop, the online classes. Last March, we started a weekly salon where people can come every week uh, online and discuss their writing problems. Um, just like I was kind of doing right now, uh, and we discuss different writing issues. So that's a fun new thing that we're doing. Now, is that is that through uh, a message board or Skype or Google Hangouts? How does that work? Uh, it's through GoToMeeting. So oh, okay, awesome. People can share their webcams and um, and talk and hear each other. Yeah, it's it's really nice. Gene, that's brilliant. I love that. Thanks. Um, I also would like to start some webinars for Odyssey. Um, my plan is to try to do a one or two tests to see how it works. We would record videotape, uh, even though there's no tape involved, <laughs> video record uh, a guest lecture at Odyssey at the workshop and then um, put that online, you know, for a small fee for people to listen to so that people who can't come to the workshop can get some taste of the experience and can can learn something from it. Uh, I always get a lot of emails from people who say, you know, I would love to come, but I can't get away from my job for six weeks mm -hmm. and I have a family and it's I can't afford it or whatever. And I understand that. And so that's part of the reason we started the online classes. But I'd like to expand uh, our offerings for for people who are trying to do it from home. Someday I would like to have what I think of as the Odysseum 
it would be our home, our grand, beautiful home. Uh, we we might have a gladiatorial pit. Sure. <laughs> one, two writers enter, one writer leaves. <laughs> It'll be writer dome. <laughs> oh God. There will very likely be a sweat box. Um, anyway, it would be a place where we could hold workshops year round, because at this point uh, we hold the workshops at on the campus of St. Anselm College, and we can only use their facilities during the summer because they're using them the rest of the year. So we're kind of maxed out. We have two workshops now, the six-week workshop, and then we have an eight-day workshop called the Never-Ending Odyssey for people who have graduated from Odyssey and want to come back and get more abuse and oh, awesome. show us their new <laughs> stuff. Kind of like an Odyssey yeah. graduate program. Yes. Very yes. cool. Yeah, the Odysseum, that has to happen. I think that's brilliant. I know, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I need some donors to come forward and fund that. Well, given given the, the scope and breadth of, of your graduates to date and the success that they have enjoyed, uh, uh, I would imagine, if nothing else, there's got to be a rich pool of, of, of alumni that you could tap for, for that and and goodness the people that you've had uh, uh in involved in some way shape or form whether as a writer in residence or, or as a guest lecturer is is epic uh, i i can't imagine that this can't happen I, I i look forward to to signing up and attending the odysseum at some point <laughs> in the future that's awesome now i i one thing uh from your background i i, I mentioned that you had you had heard that if you want to learn how to write then you write um i've discovered a, a parallel corollary in my own existence that if you want to uh, learn about anything, you teach it. Uh, yes. and, and that's a wonderful way to learn about stuff. So I was curious, seeing as how you've done 20 years of teaching uh, uh, these workshops, what, what, has, what have you learned through the instruction perspective uh, that, that affects your own writing or, or what have you discovered about the, the writing process or, or the, the, the craft uh, that you maybe wouldn't have learned if you hadn't been teaching? I have learned so much. I, <laughs> I agree with you very much uh, that teaching something forces you to understand it on a far deeper level than just trying to do it. Um, and honestly, as much as, you know, writing is key, obviously, and writing every day is really important. Deep practice is also really important, and study, and learning, and expanding your knowledge, and, you know, reading the works of other people and pulling them apart, um, and teaching. All of these things can expand your knowledge. If you're just writing the same way you do every day, you're not going to improve that much. Um, it's about pushing yourself trying different things and experimenting and studying. So anyway, um, to answer your question, there's just so many things, but one of, one of the things that teaching does is it forces you to, to answer students' questions. So students ask me things like, um, you know, well, does a character's goal have to stay the same through the whole story? And first I say, yeah. And then I start to think about it, and then I start to think about it as I'm reading other stories and watching movies and reading novels and I go no the character's goal does not stay the same and so that question probably from 20 years ago led to a huge bunch of insights that I had about plot and act structure and the way I think about acts is very different than I think most people do 
But what I found from studying and pulling apart works that I think are plotted very strongly is that uh, in each act, the protagonist has a different goal. And so the act ends when the character either achieves his goal and finds it insufficient or wrongheaded and sets a new goal, or achieves his goal and finds it's only step one and he needs to do something else now, or he doesn't achieve his goal, he fails, and he realizes that isn't the goal he should have had and sets a new goal, or his way of going about the goal was completely wrongheaded and he needs to radically change his approach to the goal. So the goal can sometimes stay the same, but the approach to the goal has to radically change. Um, Like if you live in a kingdom in a fantasy land and you hate the king, uh, one way to get out of the influence of the king would be to run away to the next country. Um, And so you might try that and fail and be caught at the border and thrown in the dungeon. Then you might say, well, that wasn't really an effective way of getting away from the king. I think the way to get out from the influence of the king is to kill the king. And so that would be a radical change in the goal. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so years of kind of studying stories and pulling them apart has taught me a lot about character motivation and goals, about acts and turns, about escalations in plots and reversals, which can be so powerful. Also, I've learned a lot about... Uh, character arcs and kind of the two types of character arcs. There's the growth character arc, which is generally driven by external circumstances. You know, a Luke Skywalker, he's got to go out and um, learn the ways of the Force and fight the Empire. And so his increasing difficulties that he faces, these challenges in his life, the external conflict forces him to grow and mature and gain skills or die. That would be the alternative. <laughs> um, That's whereas, a different kind of fail. <laughs> yes. uh, right. End of story. <laughs> uh, the other kind of character arc is the transformational character arc, which is the one where it's more internal, that the character may um, develop an internal conflict. This is more of the Han Solo type of character arc where he, hey, he's happy being a scoundrel and making money and living his life, but now he finds he has an attachment to this Luke Skywalker guy and to Leia, and so now he's conflicted. Well, what do I do? Do I take this money that Leia's handing me and go take it to Jabba and continue my life? Or do I stay here in this hopeless quest to destroy the empire and probably get, um, you know, a price put on my head by Jabba and be in a lot worse shape? And so then this internal conflict builds and leads to a difficult decision. And then the character changes, as Han Solo did. Um, So often those two types of character arcs can be combined. You can have some growth and some transformation. But I think it's really helpful to consider which one of those you're going for predominantly and how how the events are going to either feed the internal conflict or feed the growth. Okay. I, I find it interesting talking about character arcs because recently I've been uh, reading uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories, mm-hmm. uh, the original stories. And when you look at those, there's not a lot of character arc with Holmes and Watson, but the story, because those characters don't change they, they kind of serve as, as a magnifying glass to examine other human behavior. 
uh, uh, that you're you're looking at the the motivations of of the people involved in these cases and what what brings them to to commit these horrible crimes. It's it's interesting that we always talk about character arcs, and sometimes you do have characters that don't have arcs but are still central to the story. Sure, there's there's the 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 static and the dynamic uh, uh, character right. arcs where you've got the the continuity of the same character from book to book to book, uh, and their arc tends to be very. Not as as broad, perhaps, as as a, a, a single standalone novel. Absolutely, right. and and there can also be the character who is challenged to grow or change and refuses, or is incapable, and that can be kind of tragic or at least interesting. <laughs> sure, sure. You, you see <laughs> that you see the hopefully price. tragically interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask just real quick before we wrap up. Um, uh, you you had mentioned the the early on the the concept of deep practice and and I was curious if you could expand just a little bit what do you what do you mean by deep practice as a, as a writing tool deep practice means doing something that's not just sitting down and writing your story or your novel the way you normally would uh, it can be doing a writing exercise so if you know that you have a weakness in viewpoint or description or whatever, you find an exercise, there's lots of great books of writing exercises, or make up one of your own, and do that so that you're particularly focusing on developing a skill. It's like doing scales on the piano. You do them because you are particularly trying to improve the articulation of your fingers, the way you strike the key, whatever, so that you're, you're doing an exercise particularly focused on improving a skill rather than just, I'm going to sit down and write for two hours today. Okay. It's just writing example scenes that you're not going to put in anything, but it's just meant to, to, to work those mental muscles. Right. It could also be taking a story that you love by somebody else and studying it, ripping it apart, deconstructing it, and looking particularly at the area that you're weak in. So if you're weak in, again, viewpoint or whatever, Look at how the viewpoint is handled in this story. Highlight where the thoughts are given. Highlight where the person's perceptions of the situation reveal something about the character internally. Um, so there's all sorts of ways that you can do this deep practice. Uh, you know, it's like what athletes do, musicians, artists. Um, you can type out a passage from a story that you love just to internalize the phrasings, the sentence structures, that sort of thing. Excellent. And, and see, now that's, that really is, I think, indicative of, of the, the, the writer who is truly committed to their craft. Because I've, I've been keenly aware in, in my own life and, and in several of my peers, this, this notion that every word I have to be writing has to be in service to, to a, 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 a a writing of the end and a, and a work that I'm going to put out in the world and I need to start my building my career and I need to get stuff out there and I need to create everything that I write has to be geared towards creating a finished piece. And, and I love the idea of saying, no, I'm going to write a, a scene uh, from a perspective that I'm not comfortable with or, or that deals with, with a topic that I'm very, I, that I'm clearly not as good at as, a, as perhaps I should be. Uh, I think that's important. That's 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 a key. That's a key component to to improving your craft, which is, of course, what Odyssey is all about. Uh, exactly. I mean, what you want to do is develop yourself as a writer, rather than just produce or spew out or whatever words. You want to develop 
your what what do you have to say what are the tools in your toolbox so that you can say it in the, the right way for each story um, that's that's really what's going to make the difference over the long haul I know you know some writers who have written millions of words and you know they're not bad writers but they're not getting really much better because they just keep going at it the same way they always have and that's not the way to make breakthroughs or to make strong improvements right right so, absolutely so pretty much if you're if you're if you're feeling stuck in your writing you should try something new yeah go, go come at it from a different angle Okay. Just to see what shakes loose. Absolutely. Well, guys, the, the, the clock has actually set fire to my notes and stormed out of the room. Uh, so I'm assuming that means we're out of time. But before we wrap up, Gene, uh, could you speak just a little bit? I know that uh, uh, the Odyssey Writers Workshop has a new winter workshop uh, uh, that's coming up, and the deadline for signing up is, is this week. Uh, so could you, could you give us a, a, a pitch for, for what will writers get out of this, this upcoming workshop? And what can they do to, to sign up and get the most out of this incredible opportunity? Sure. We have three online classes that will be held in January and February. Our online classes are, I think, really special in that they're held live through GoToMeeting so that you can interact with the instructor. You can ask questions. You can answer questions. We have great discussions that go on in these courses so that it's not just reading a lesson plan off of the internet and then doing an exercise. Um, it's, and there's interaction with the other students through email groups and online chats and things like that so that you are engaged and active in the process of understanding these concepts and, and using the concepts. We have serious homework assignments and you get lots of feedback on them and so you can see whether you're doing well at, at understanding and using these new concepts. Um, I teach one of the three classes. The, ones, the one that I'm teaching is Showing versus Telling in Fantastic Fiction. And the deadline for that is December 6th. So if you're interested, please, please apply. Showing and Telling is this issue that you know, writers always talk about, and they, most of them that just don't understand it. And it's so important. It underlies everything in your writing, every scene, every sentence. Um, we have another course called One Brick at a Time, Crafting Compelling Scenes, that's being taught by one of our most popular instructors, Barbara Ashford. Barbara is an a Odyssey Workshop graduate from back in 2000 and is now an award-winning novelist, um, and she is a terrific teacher. And this is all about scene structure. So what type of scene are you writing? What needs to go into that scene? How can you solve problems if you're having difficulty with a scene? Um, things like that. And her deadline is December 9th, so that one's also coming right up for applying. And then our third course is Effective Endings in Speculative Fiction, which is being taught by C.C. Finley. And if you've, you know, tried to write stories, you know that endings are one of the most difficult parts. <laughs> Finding the right ending, having it make a big impact, having the reader not see the ending coming and yet still accept it as the right and perfect ending to the story. Those things are really hard and he's going to tackle that, which I'm very excited about. Um, his deadline is December 26th. So please hop on over there if you're interested. Um, you have to submit a writing sample, but um, I would love to see your work and uh, include you if, you, if we can. 
So, so friends, do make your way out to the Odyssey Writers Workshop website. Uh, we'll definitely have a link to that in the show notes. The deadline for signing up for these awesome winter classes is coming up really, really fast. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Seating is limited. Make that scene because this is clearly a landmark event and a, and a remarkable opportunity uh, to engage with with your fellow writers and with some skilled masters of the craft. So and, now, and if you've listening to this podcast a bit late to match that deadline, don't despair. Go there anyway because they'll make more. <laughs> they'll make more. There are online courses. There's the summer course to check out. There's all kinds of awesomeness out there. Definitely check it out. And 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 our our time is ticking away. But there's one last thing I've got to ask, uh, uh, and and that is I, I know that some of our listeners in listening to your intro, Gene, uh, uh, are dubious about the prospect or possibility that you could actually rap. J.R.R. Tolkien. And I'm, I'm wondering, could you just give us a, a sample of what Tom Bombadil sounds like when he is rapped? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Let, let's do this thing. Take a merry dog, dairy doll, my darling. Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling. Down along underhills, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter. Slender is the willow wand, clearer than the water. Bam! There it is! <laughs> awesome! Fabulous. Ladies and gentlemen, you have heard <laughs> Tom Bombadil rapped for the first time in internet history. This this is a landmark moment. <laughs> and you've, you've just brought uh, uh, Tolkien to a whole new generation of folks. That's right. Exactly. And in, a, and in about three weeks, we're going to start seeing people accusing them of, of cutting Tom Bombadil from all the films because he was rapping. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Now, who knew Tolkien was so gangsta? That's awesome. <laughs> Gene, thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing your thoughts and insights. This, this has been fabulous, ma'am. I've had a great time. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> us too. Us too. Doc, what are you taking from this conversation? There was a lot of, of writerly goodness to be found in, in that uh, last 20 or so minutes of, of discussion. What are you taking from this, man? Um, one of the things I'm taking out of this is a whole new appreciation of the try-fail cycle. Mm, because mm-hmm. because you can you can have try, succeed, and then realize you just did the wrong thing. Yeah. And there's your fail, and you have to try again. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. That is. That's incredibly useful as you're as you're plotting the progression of your character arc. Absolutely. Excellent. For for me, it was it was a refinement and a clarification of of what's important and what's not important. There were some really cool and very practical, you know, is this happening? Is this happening? Is this happening? And if not, it probably should. And it, it was just a really useful and effective review. As you finish a scene, you can go back and here's a, a an assessment list of, of if this is a successful scene, it will have accomplished A, B, and C. Uh, uh, and, and while, you know, writing is, is never that linear or, or specific, that I think is going to be incredibly valuable to me and my writing and I think to our listeners as well. 
So, dear That's- friends, thank you so much for tuning in. Now, now here's the awesomeness of the roundtable. You, you've heard and, and feasted on at the buffet of, of writerly goodness uh, uh, that is our 20 Minutes With. Now, in just seven days, uh, we're going to have Jean back, and, and we're going to have her workshop a story, bringing her decades of editorial, instructional, and literary experience to bear on a courageous writer's story. And, dear friends, in, I'm going to don my, my, my prophet its robes and tell you it's going to be fabulous so 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 please by all means do tune in and between now and then uh uh doc i know that's that's seven days one of the things they definitely need to be doing is checking out the odyssey writers workshop website and signing up for the for the winter uh uh, classes that are coming up because that deadline's coming up fast what else do you think they need to be doing in these next seven days sir i i think they need to keep warm (laughs) because it's cold out there baby it's Uh, cold outside (laughs) and and, and while while you're while you're all bundled up nice and snug why not pull out some some pages and do some of that deep practice writing yeah absolutely absolutely that's good advice sir keep warm and deep practice (laughs) instead of keep calm and and carry on i like that i think i think that that, that's a meme right there that's awesome (laughs) and dear friends i will tell you as i always do you find what you're looking for so if you set your sights on the awesomeness the fabulosity the gloriosity of the really really cool things that just spin brightly in your mind If you look for them, dear friends, I promise you, you will find them. We'll be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.